Hello and welcome to our first year of Mattress and Stories podcast. I'm your host, Molly Vassabertolucci. Wait a second, that's not true. I am still your host, Molly Vassabertolucci, but our first year is now Blooming in Motherhood, a podcast to help moms find confidence, calm, and connection in the early years of motherhood. On the Blooming in Motherhood podcast, You'll hear from other mothers who've been through it as they share the stories of what it was like for them. You'll hear from experts with the knowledge and skills in everything from baby and toddler sleep to child development to pelvic floor health, all to help you navigate the early years of motherhood. And you'll hear from me, Molly Vasa Bertolucci, a licensed perinatal mental health therapist and a mother of two on a parenthood learning journey, just like you. We're still going to share a lot of resources and information on this podcast, but it's not a substitute for mental health treatment. I'm so excited to be here with you. Thanks for being here with me. Hello and welcome to the last episode of the first season of the podcast. After this episode, we'll be taking just a very small break to give the podcast some room to grow and transform. And we'll be back after Thanksgiving and I can't wait for you to see some of these changes. No spoilers, but I'm really excited about it. So for today's special finale episode, we have guest Dr. Cassidy Freitas. Cassidy is a licensed marriage and family therapist and mom to three with a virtual group private practice in California, where she supports parents navigating fertility, pregnancy, postpartum, and parenting young children. She hosts the top-rated wellness and parenting podcast, Holding Space, and she shares supportive tips and strategies for millennial parents over on Instagram at Dr. Cassidy. I loved getting to talk with Cassidy about her own experiences in postpartum and parenting that have led her to the work that she's doing today. In this episode, we talk about models of parenthood from our own parents, breaking cycles of perfectionism, sleep deprivation and the impact on mental health, perinatal mood and anxiety disorders for both parents, breastfeeding challenges, and how parenting is a long game with learning, growth, and healing for many years. Let's jump in with Dr. Cassidy. Cassidy, thank you so much for joining us. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your family. Thank you so much for having me, Molly. This is, I, I was, we were just saying before you hit record how excited I am to get a chance to share and explore and not be the host of, of the conversation to just, to just get to be the guest. It's, it's an honor to be here. Um, so my name is Dr. Cassidy Freitas. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. I'm born and raised in San Diego, California, and we live here now. Um, I live with my high school sweetheart, my husband. We've been together since we were teenagers, and uh, we have three kids together. Um, my oldest, um, she's 12, and then um, in between her and our middle child, my son, we had a miscarriage. And then my son is now nine, so they're three years apart. And then um, we had a big gap in between because we thought maybe we'd be done. But I just always felt like we weren't totally complete. But we went back and forth because we knew like we'd been through it and we knew that um, 
you know, it's a lot. <laughs> and um, we were out of diapers and our kids were all potty trained and, and you know, they were all in school. And then we decided we, we really felt her little spirit lingering around. And so we, we ended up um, trying for a third and we had our third in the midst of the global pandemic. So she's three. She was born in 2020, July 2020. So um, mm-hmm. that was a wild time for its own reasons. But yeah, that's those are our, our three kiddos. And I imagine all of them, you had such different experiences in the first year with the age gaps and then having a baby and a pregnancy and a baby after a loss mm-hmm. too. Yeah. When you think back to that first first year with your first daughter, what three words would you use to describe your first year of motherhood? Mm. So, and you're saying three words once I was in it, not the three words I went in expecting. <laughs> yeah. So once I was in it, um, anxiety, protection, because there was the all the different ways in which I responded to that anxiety with protection um, and growth. There was just so <laughs> there was so much growth that happened, and and really that experience became the catalyst. Once we got support and all of the wounds from that year, you know, turned into scars and we got support, that became the catalyst for all the work that I do today. Um, Because becoming a parent really felt like this experience of falling apart, really, like all the, all the things that I kind of put in place to belong, to survive, to maintain certain, certain roles, all kind of felt like they fell apart. And when all my pieces were on the floor, um, that was really vulnerable. Um, so I'd probably throw vul- vulnerability in there too, just kind of as like the overarching um, word. And and then we slowly, um, I slowly pieced things back together, began to look at the different parts with support, um, with my own therapy. And, um, and, and then through that, there was a lot of growth. So yeah, I think those would be the words I would pick. And it sounds like that was not what you expected. What was the model in your head of motherhood? What did what did you think that it would be like? I was a person who always knew I wanted to be a mom. Like I really, I really was excited to become a mom. When I was little, I played with dolls and a lot of the scenarios were kind of this like mother-child scenario. Um I really loved animals and I had a lot of pets that I really nurtured and took, you know, took care of. When I got a little bit older, um, you know, I'd read a lot of like the Babysitter's Club books and um, and I really looked at my mom as just like this model of perfection. Like that's, she was, and my dad, they were, they were perfect in my mind. Um, My dad seemed to have endless energy for playtime and he showed up at every game. He was always the coach. He always was encouraging. My mom 
just also seemed to have endless energy. They both worked a lot and somehow still showed up, you know, and for all the activities they had us involved in. And, um, and yeah, they were just the picture perfect models in my mind. And, and now of course I have a different perspective, right? Like my dad also was really intense. And, you know, when I was little, I always sort of took his intensity around like schoolwork and sports as like, you know, this is, this is how you get better, you know, is like you, you have that kind of pressure. Um, but I understand it more now from the context of his own upbringing and how he grew up really poor. And so how he pulled himself out of that, um, insecure place was through academics and achievement. There was a lot of comparison between him and his brothers and competition. And, and I kind of felt that, you know, not as intensely as he probably did. I think he, he tried, right? Like every generation, like he tried to change some things, but I still felt that competition between my siblings and I in comparison. Uh, maybe not because they explicitly would, but like more implicitly, right? Like just things that we would notice or things I would feel and nobody really kind of gave me space or words to describe some of those feelings. And my mom, you know, she um, is a Hispanic woman and she became a judge. I mean, she's a judge now. And in order to get to where she is, right, to law school and to show up in those spaces that were primarily filled with white men at the time, you know, she had to be perfect. And so what I saw as perfection and also like, you know, always productive, always working, never slowing down, definitely what kind of showed up in the way that she parented, you know, because she never apologized, never said sorry. There was never, never repairs. And, and I, I think that the way that when I was really little, I kind of understood that was like, she can do no wrong and I am wrong, you know, um, and and so I saw both my parents just really high achieving, which made me feel like that was also expected out of me in order to belong within that family system. And with that came challenges throughout high school and college and my young adult years of feeling like I also needed to be perfect. You know, anything lower than an A would send me into a panic. I started to really struggle with anxiety and performance anxiety. And and also it, it, it led to a lot of like disconnect in my relationships because I really would show up with kind of the mask of having everything together all the time. And so I think I went into motherhood with that same sort of mentality of like, you know, I'm really good. When there's a project, I can study really hard. I can learn all the things and then I can achieve it and get the gold star, get the A, you know? Um, and I was like, oh, sleep, dep sleep deprivation, that's fine. I've pulled all-nighters, you know? <laughs> like I know how to work hard and to do well at things. And what then happened though <laughs> is, you know, I became a mom and 
this wasn't a project to be achieved. The sleep deprivation was a beast that I had no idea was as hard as it was going to be. I, it became really hard to maintain the mask of being okay when I didn't know if I was going to get any sleep that night, when my, the space for the things that I used to have and connect with as part of my identity and, and you know, the space that would allow me to kind of like regroup and get the mask back on, you know, of having everything together all the time. It, that, that, those spaces, that space was, was non-existent in those first few months. And, you know, my body was healing from this huge thing that also felt like uh, my first failure, right? The first job I had, give birth. I had expectations there of, you know, an unmedicated vaginal birth. And that's not what happened. Um, I had pretty rigid ideas around that, which led me to hire a doula that had also some aligned rigid ideas. And it just created this sort of really traumatic situation where I felt like I had was a failure and I was broken. That was like my first job that I felt like I had failed. And, um, and you know, I think that just became this jumpstart of feeling like I had to catch up to prove myself to who? myself, really, like to the societal expectations. And I think, you know, the mask of having everything together that I so desperately wanted to maintain because it was what I had always done in order to keep myself from having to feel the underneath, which was all this vulnerability that I didn't really have a model for how to communicate and express and ask for support around. It just kept me really um, isolated for a really long time. And it just added to the struggle. Um, I really thought that like my partner and I, my husband and I, you know, would become closer through the whole experience. And what ended up happening was I was struggling with postpartum anxiety and he was actually struggling with postpartum depression, but we didn't have a name for that at the time. And so that was another thing that I felt like I really had to hide was that we were struggling because, you know, social media was kind of, Instagram was kind of a thing at the time. And all I'd see there or on Facebook was just everybody's highlights. And it looked like nobody else was struggling with these things. And that even sort of furthered the shame cycle of, oof, something's just really wrong with me and can't let anybody see that. So hide, isolate put on the mask of just having it, everything together and trying to maintain perfection, which led to things like really trying to control her sleep, right? Like her naps, the feeding, so desperately needing breastfeeding to work because that felt like, you know, breast is best and I'm, I've got to be the best. I've got to give her the best. Of course, I want to be a good mom. What, what mom doesn't want to give their child the best? If breast is best and that's what's got to happen, and just a lot of rigidity around that. It just, it was a pressure cooker. And at some point, everything began to implode. <laughs> when I hear you talk about this, this pressure cooker of sleep deprivation, perfectionism, a history of anxiety, 
a traumatic birth experience, breastfeeding challenges, the isolation, right? Like I can see this leading to postpartum anxiety. It makes sense. I can see the thread. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. What was it like for you to recognize that? Like, did you recognize right away Mm -hmm. that what you were dealing with was postpartum anxiety or did it take some time to figure out what was going on? Yeah. Yeah. So for some context, um, I gave birth to her soon after I graduated from my master's program in marriage and family therapy. I was a baby therapist. I was just starting to get some of my hours. I, I had learned a lot of things in a lot of areas and um, this wasn't necessarily – this was not a specialty at the time for me. But I knew a thing or two about risk factors and about postpartum mood and anxiety disorders. And, you know, unfortunately, because I was like – I'm a therapist, I, I thought there was this part of me that thought I can't be the one that struggles, right? Like – what a imposter or fraud I must be if I am also struggling with this thing postpartum. And so that actually like added to some of the shame, unfortunately, for me. And I think there, there's roots of that, right, in my own ideas around these expectations of not being human. Um, and, you know, and now I can look back with so much more compassion and and see actually how, you know, imperfect but perfectly human <laughs> with all the imperfections I, I am. And those experiences just provide so much empathy and understanding I have for the clients that I work with now. But yeah, unfortunately at the time, I think I knew, but I was too afraid to admit that I was like becoming a case study in postpartum anxiety. And Um, It really took me opening up to somebody, um, finally, (laughs) out of desperation, but just taking that meaningful risk of sharing with somebody, hey, I'm kind of having thoughts that feel disturbing and intrusive about bad things happening to my baby. My marriage is really struggling. My husband is like distancing and numbing himself and I feel alone and I feel like this I'm the only person that must have these sort of thoughts and that that, that this is happening to and fortunately that person I shared this with was like oh my god you too and I was like yeah wait you too and it was just like this exhale of like oh my gosh like that shame that had been just festering that little petri dish of isolation just got doused with this like a moment of connection and wait I'm not the only one and gosh if I'm not the only one could this mean that there's a way for me to get help to talk to somebody who like could support me in all of this yeah like there's hope yeah yeah that little bit of hope in that connection became the bridge and I reached out for support and I saw a therapist. We, he got a therapist. We went to couples therapy. Those, all those things that we were struggling with began to feel better and, and, and not just feel better, but like, as I, as I said before, as we were putting these pieces, picking these pieces of myself back up, seeing that some of those things and patterns and protections and 
were no longer serving me, right? Like, gosh, I don't want my child. I, I want to break the cycle. I don't want my child to to take on this generational trauma of having to be perfect and never rest and I I never ask for help and do everything on her own. And so that brought a lot of meaning to the work um, initially. And and because of the the training that I had and the opportunity I had with my clients, began to look more deeply into the research, found out that such thing as postpartum depression in dads was a thing, wanted to do my own, um, wanted to add to the literature because there wasn't a lot of information, but this was something that so de- had, deep, had so deeply impacted my family that really um, inspired me to go back and get my PhD where I did my dissertation on postpartum depression in dads and the impact that this can have on 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 the other on the birth on the birth partner on the whole family system and and then that became you know the work that I do today in working with individuals couples and families and I um it's incredibly meaningful work to me because uh, I can I can think back to those times and like imagine myself opening one of the doors I was hiding behind and just getting down and like scooping myself up and giving myself a hug and just being like, this feels hard because it is, not because you're broken. Um, Just wait till you see what all of this pain becomes. And but I'd also say, but don't, don't worry. You don't need to worry about that right now. You don't need to work towards something and create something. Right now, you just got to rest. Let's, let's find – I wish I could go back and say, let's find a way for you to get four-hour stretch tonight. Let's just start there because you deserve it. And this sleep deprivation is a beast, not because you're weak, but because it just is. Let's find a way to get you a four-hour stretch tonight because you're worth it. You don't need to do anything to earn it. You're just worth it just by existing, just because you are. That's what I'd go back and say. (laughs) All right, really quick break here to say that all moms need and deserve support. I have a free quiz on my website you can take to find out what kind of support might be most helpful for you in your motherhood journey. That quiz is at poppy-therapy.com slash quiz. When you take the quiz, you'll get an email with your results along with a list of personalized resources and supports to help you thrive in feeling calm, confident, and connected as a mom. You can find the quiz at poppy-therapy.com quiz or in the show notes of this episode. Let's get back to Cassidy's story. Mm, it's such a beautiful picture that you're painting of going through these struggles, really being in it and what that felt like at the time and then rebuilding and coming out the other side, taking a look at the parts, the pieces, like perfectionism Mm -hmm. and having to do things a certain way or having to do things on your own and making the realization that they are not serving you. They're not helpful for you going forward as a parent, Mm -hmm. like this opportunity to pivot and build new ways of thinking and new ways of being. I'm curious Mm -hmm. how this shows up for you now as a parent, like this 
kind of different mm. way of operating than you used to mm-hmm. because it's not a one-time thing, right? Becoming a parent, you're continually mm-hmm. learning. You're continually looking at these pieces mm-hmm. and parts of yourself. It's not just, okay, a one-time pivot and here we go in this <laughs> new way. So oh, what yeah. does that look like now? Oh, yeah. So, you know, in that in my daughter's first few years, my oldest, you know, I did the best with what I knew, what I had available to me at the time. And there was a lot of, when I look back at like videos, I cringe because there was a lot of me kind of like kind of trying to micromanage her behavior because her big feelings were something I had learned early on to squash because they, you know, were too much for the people around me and or, you know, timeouts were big, you know, kind of parenting tactic back then. Um, And it was like, you know, you don't let those out. And so when she would, it was really uncomfortable for me because it was something I had. It was basically like a representation of all the, the parts of me that I had learned to kind of hide away. So when I watch back at some of those home videos, I see that I'm trying to like validate her but I'm also really struggling right like really 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 easily triggered and and really um, reactive to her big feelings and really not sturdy pretty uncomfortable and so you know and then and then I gained more resources I read more books I went to more therapy I did more processing of my own trauma I did a lot of inner child work in my own work you know, I um, started listening to a lot of podcasts. I did some courses. I've, right, like I I started to do more work. And so now she's 12 and we have a three-year-old who I parent a lot differently than I did her. And so sometimes I'll say to her in moments after our toddler has a big tantrum and I'm, I am, and not perfectly at all, but like able to stay sturdy in the face of all those feelings and validate her and hold boundaries, but still just maintain um, that connection with her and not getting triggered or super reactive. And then after, you know, my my tween might be around and and I might, I, I do, I will take some time to come to her and be like, hey, you know, what you just witnessed there, you might not have exact memories of yourself having tantrums, but your body might remember. And, 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 and she has language for this because we've talked about this a lot, that she does have some perfectionism, people-pleasing tendencies, right? And, and, I, and I repair now with her those things, right? Like I say sorry now, you know? I say sorry multiple times a day between my three children and my partner, right? And, um, and I own that like – she might not remember, but her body might remember. And I give her some context for, you know, I just, I, I think I, I showed up for you in certain ways back then that I wish I could go back and change. And I want to name that for you now. Um, and, and, and I wish I could go back and this is what I would do differently. And then I show up for her now. I show her with my actions, the, the change that I'm trying to make, right? Like, and again, not perfectly. If I was perfect, I wouldn't give them – there would be no chances for repairs, right? Like I wouldn't get to model what it is to be imperfect and to be human. And so there's plenty of that too. And and yeah, and then, and then there's moments where, you know, when it comes to things like homework that, you know, 
used to be really triggering for me and used to be, have a lot of tension around it with my, within my family system, you know, grades and this sort of thing. When my kids come to me with these things, I notice the trigger. I notice the desire or the pull to like get really intense about it or to worry about things. And then I pause. I, I, I create more, I create space between the trigger and the reactivity, just like I wish the adults around me would have had the ability to get support around so they could do too. And, and respond with support, letting them know that I'm here to help in a way that is connecting in a way that is honoring that like, you know, they're human and the world doesn't need them to be the best and greatest and the, at all these subjects, right? Like the, the part, this whole process is about them learning some skills, but also learning what they love and just allowing them to be human while showing up for them as a human myself. And so um, yeah, a lot of repair. I continue to go to therapy. I um, continue to kind of have to having to face the part of me that struggles with rest and being and rest being productive, allowing myself to slow down. Um, fortunately, I, I also have opportunity to have these conversations with my parents. Um, they're willing to engage in these conversations with me and um, I know not everybody has those opportunities, and that's been really healing too. And then there's the work that I do in having a podcast and being a therapist and showing up in the digital space like on social media and uh, letting people in to my own behind-closed-door messy moments in the hopes that they receive the same gift that I did when that person was like, oh my gosh, yeah, me too. <laughs> Um, and maybe that can build a bridge to them, for them, uh, to get support themselves. Yeah. Yeah. It's all such a journey. Motherhood is a journey, right? Of healing, learning, growing. And this is over 11, 12 years, right? This long journey. Yeah. And when you're in those early days and months of motherhood, it can be hard to imagine having that kind of distance from the struggles that you're in and not just the emotional and the mental health piece but also the practical challenges so you mentioned some difficulties with breastfeeding which many women struggle with can you tell us a little bit about that yeah so I uh, had a c-section and I remember just initially being really afraid that that was going to impact our feeding journey um but it didn't in the sense that like she latched as soon, you know, as soon as we were able to be together post-surgery, um, you know, I, I brought her to my breast and she latched and I had lactation support in the hospital. Um, but I, I don't know, the latch was the latch was there, but the latch wasn't great. I didn't, you know, and, and it's so interesting because with my second and third, I knew so much more because of the pain and suffering we went through with the first that like I really um, could adjust things and not just – I think I was so uncomfortable with her crying that I would just get her on the breast mm-hmm. as quickly as possible without pausing to take the time to really like look at the latch or unlatch and relatch. 
So my nipples were like destroyed really early on, bleeding, scabbing. I ended up having um, overproduction issues, so a lot of plug ducts, um, which led to mastitis. We ended up, um, you know, I ended up getting antibiotics for the mastitis, which led to her getting thrush on her tongue, and then my breast got thrushed on it, and we were just giving it back and forth to each other. And mastitis, like, you know, I've had a C-section, three C-sections now. I passed a kidney stone with my son when I was pregnant with him. And I'm saying, I'm telling you, mastitis was one of the most painful things I've ever experienced. Oh, yeah. The kidney stone was up there, like I will say, and and just labor and in general. But like the mastitis should not be discarded as just like a no big deal thing. It was so painful. Oh, yeah. It is no joke. The pain is no joke. And you're trying to care for and feed a baby while you're going through it as well. So painful. It's no joke. Um, But I really – again, had it in my idea, the message of breast is best. And, you know, I I understand where that messaging comes from. It was to support lactating moms because there was a period of time, you know, my mom, my mom got mastitis as well. And and she, she shared with me that like, there was no support for lactating moms. So it was just like, oh, you get mastitis. Like you just like, like, why, why are you breastfeeding them? Like you need to give formula, like formula Mm -hmm. was, was really pushed. And, and so, you know, there was it was a push for like more resources for lactating moms. I understand that, but it went too far. <laughs> you know, like I don't think it's breast is best, and I don't even think it's just fed is best, right? It's like I think it's it's support is best, support for each individual situation and what that what's what's going to keep that mom well and supported. You know, um, but I was determined. The birth plan failed. I will not fail. This Mm -hmm. was my mentality. So I pushed and I pushed and I was so sleep deprived and I was so, I was struggling and gosh, I wish that I could go in and just tell myself, you know, what your daughter needs more than an ounce of your breast milk. And yeah, breast milk is amazing, freaking magical stuff, but what she needs more than any ounce of that is for you to be well, is for a mom who's getting some restorative rest so that she can be attuned to the cues that you're so desperately trying to be aware of because you're wanting to control this like sleep-wake-eat cycle. Like, you know, she needs you to be well. And, and, And if that means, you know, introducing formula, if that means switching over, like you are a great mom. And you are enough. You are enough. And that's what she needs more than anything. Um, And you deserve to take care of yourself even outside of what it is that she needs from you, right? Like just Mm -hmm. because you are worthy. You were that baby once that like was so worthy without having to prove it or earn it. Nothing changed. You're still that person. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was was really tough. and 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 eventually there did get to a point where my milk supply kind of regulated itself and, and breastfeeding felt easier. Um, but there was a lot of pain and suffering and hardship before before we got there, in which I um wish I had asked for more support around. I just wish I had 
been more flexible um, to in and and was prior and had prioritized more of my own mental wellness in all of that mm. in that feeding journey. Mm. Yeah, yeah, just giving yourself that grace. You mentioned sleep, trying to control sleep, and anxiety can really grab onto these things we think we have control over. It gets an illusion of control, right? Oh yeah. But this, like, if I do X, Y, Z, she'll sleep. Or if I can just get, you know, recreate this perfect night where she slept, like, I can have some control over this process. Can you talk a little bit about sleep and how you managed and then kind of came out of that sleep deprivation hole that you were in and that moms listening Mm -hmm. in right now might be in themselves? Yeah, I, um, I remember with her you know, I didn't know any better. So like when she'd wake up, I was like, well, she's up. And like, I, this is what you do. You, I would turn on, turn on all the lights. I would, um, change her. I would feed her out in the living room. Like, right. Like I would take her out. I would, there were lights on. And then I was like, she's awake now. So we're just, I'm going to do some like FaceTime. I would call it FaceTime flirty time, right. Where I'm just like engaging with her in the middle of the night. You know, like I, I didn't, I, thought that's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> and that's what I did. And I remember my husband coming out one night rubbing his eyes, right? Like, and he's just like, what are you doing? And I just remember being so resentful that like he was sleeping and I was here nighttime parenting, like, you know, like, well, she's up and like, you know, somebody needs to be up with her, right? Like just like snapping back at him and and I was so sleep deprived and it's so contributed to my anxiety. Um, and I never, I didn't think that asking for night support was an option. Cause like, I felt like an imposter, like if I can't do this on my own, then like it doesn't count was kind of the mentality, you know? Ugh. Um, and then with our second, so we just white knuckled through and we suffered and struggled until she finally started sleeping longer stretches. Um, but with my second, we were, you know, a lot of work happened in between. I did a lot more research. I learned a lot more things. I went in with such a more protected plan. And when he was born, we actually um, knew, you know, my husband had, you know, he, he, he's, he's a risk for depression. I'm at risk for anxiety. We need sleep. That was like the number one thing we wanted to protect. So we actually had my mother-in-law who would come several nights a week and she would sleep on like a futon in the bedroom that the baby was sleeping in. Um, And my husband and I would kind of switch off like being in a separate room um, on the nights that she wasn't able to be there. But like what we basically did was everybody gets some sleep. You know, we're going to put some earplugs in, an eye mask on to tune out the senses. My mother-in-law or my partner, if it's my time to sleep, is going to bring the baby to me when it's time to feed. Um, you know, if I'm still – during the time that I was still trying to establish, you know, my breast milk. And I'm just going to be like half dead asleep while baby's on the breast, right? Um, and then they're going to take the baby after and do all the rest. Um, and then, and then you know, and then eventually when, you know – I needed more sleep. We're going to introduce formula and that's going to be a beautiful option for me to get more rest. Um, you know, it was tricky for a period of time because I still had the oversupply. So if I went too long without feeding, I could have plugged ducts and 
you know, so it was kind of fine, talking, working with lactation to kind of balance those things. But the goal was four-hour stretches and then eventually five and eventually six, like for me to get sleep, even if the baby isn't sleeping through the night. And that looked like activating our support system and tuning out my senses so that I could actually get that rest. And it was life-giving. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Just what a difference that the amount of support that you have can make. That's a total game changer. Truly. <laughs> What words of encouragement or support or wisdom do you have for moms who are really in it right now in early Mm. motherhood? You are not alone. This feels hard because it is hard, not because there's something wrong or broken within you. And you're so deserving and worthy of getting support, and you don't have to prove it to earn that. You just are. When you were born... Just like your baby, you look at your baby and you think you are so wor- they're so worthy of safety, of love, of support without having to prove it anything or earn anything. You were that baby at one point and nothing changed along the way. And so um, I hope that these stories and all of the stories you hear on Molly's podcast give you that sense of you're not alone and hopefully becomes a bridge for you to get the support that you're so, so, so deserving of. Mm. Thank you. Yes. As you're saying that, I'm picturing my babies. I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and you do. You want to give them all the love and compassion, and you want them to experience joy and acceptance, and we need that for ourselves too. We do. So that's a beautiful way of turning that around and caring for yourself the way that you care for your family. Cassidy, where can listeners go to learn more about you and to connect with you? Yeah, so I have a group practice in California. So if you're a California parent listening and you're looking to take a step to get support, we have a group of incredible therapists. We're accepting new clients. Um, I also have a podcast called Holding Space. And I show up on social media at Dr. Cassidy, where I share content related to postpartum and parenting. And my website is drcassidymft.com. Great. We will link all of that in the show notes. Thank you, Cassidy, so much for coming on the show and sharing with such vulnerability and openness about your own experiences and how that's led to the powerful work that you're doing now supporting parents and their families. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And if you did, you might want to subscribe to the podcast so you could be the first to know when new episodes air. Be sure to check out the show notes for any links, resources, or information that we mentioned in this episode. Thank you for listening.